When you think of the struggle for civil rights, who comes to mind? Maybe Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks? Or as we heard in the last episode, the many students who filed suit for integration of public schools and won. But the struggle didn't start in the 1950s. It goes way back and it involved many, many people organizing on multiple fronts. They were practicing dissent, often at risk of harm to themselves or even death. There's so many people that have uh, dissented, that have gone against the grain, that have uh, looked rather than backwards, had looked forward in terms of not what we are, but what we can be and what we uh, shall be and what we will be. Dr. Michael Higginbotham is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore. Dr. Higginbotham is the author of a book called Ghosts of Jim Crow, Ending Racism in Post-Racial America, as well as a case book on race law. He recently sat down with me for a conversation about a list he made. This is a list of heroes, some well-known, some not, whom he credits with seeing America for what it could be, and then working toward making it so. This is American Descent, a podcast from With Good Reason and James Madison's Montpelier about pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. I'm Kelly Libby. First on the list, a dissenter whose life took an unexpected turn. John Newton. John Newton was um, a slave ship captain back in the 1780s. Uh, He was a Bostonian who did, I think, two runs where he was involved in the Middle Passage, uh, transporting goods from the Americas to England and then going down to the west coast of Africa and capturing individuals, putting them in bondage, and then bringing them to uh, the Americas. John Newton um, did something that I think a lot of uh, Americans back then and today have trouble doing, and that is he looked in the mirror after he completed his second um, slave voyage, and he didn't like what he saw. And what he did, though, was to recognize the immorality of what he had participated in. But unlike a lot of people who would recognize it and maybe just stop, John Newton did something more. He became an abolitionist. He became an outspoken person uh, for the end of slavery. And he helped to start uh, abolitionist societies in the Americas. And he also uh, was most famous for writing a song that not only helped him to understand his involvement in uh, a very immoral activity, but also um, to recognize the wrongness, but that people can change uh, and become better. And that song that uh, he wrote, and that many individuals may be familiar with even today, uh, is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton was able to see uh, the wrongness of what he had participated in and then was able to not only work to end it, 
but to help others to, to recognize that slavery was wrong and to get them to also uh, support abolition. So uh, when I think about uh, individuals in American history who dissented, certainly John Newton uh, is an individual that uh, is one of the first, you know, one of the first to uh, dissent. The next name on Dr. Higginbotham's list might be familiar to you, Harriet Tubman. But it's what she did that bears remembrance. I like to tell people she was the uh, best uh, Amtrak employee that we've ever had. Uh, (laughs) She, of course, was uh, on the Underground Railroad. She was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, that institution that has got to be looked at as the biggest um, freedom entity that ever existed. It brought more people out of slavery than any other entity or institution. Uh, The Underground Railroad was a series of routes leading from south to north, and there were about three or four major routes from the southern area of the United States to northern areas in the United States. Um, One route went through uh, Maryland, where I reside, uh, another uh, two routes went through Ohio from from Kentucky to Ohio, and um, those were uh, routes where individuals uh, would go south, would identify um, slaves that wished to escape, and these individual conductors would help those slaves um, to find routes to freedom. And Harriet Tubman uh, was the most successful Underground Railroad conductor in terms of bringing uh, individuals to freedom. She uh, was involved in 19 separate missions. She actually escaped from slavery herself from uh, Maryland where she was enslaved, escaped, and then went back 19 different times uh, to help others. She was not only cunning and, and smart and brilliant, but she had the courage and tenacity uh, more so than anybody else. So if I had one person by my side, it would be her if I was in a, a nasty fight because she carried a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. She said, I only have two rules. Uh, the first rule is I'm in charge, which means whatever I say you do. And the second rule is when you sign up with me, Uh, on my Underground Railroad train, uh, there's no turning back. You will either get to freedom or you will get to heaven, one or the other. She became a very valuable asset to uh, Union forces during the Civil War. So she became one of the leading scouts to lead Union troops safely uh, through uh, the South and back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Was Harriet Tubman trying to stay under the radar, or was she well-known in her time? Uh, You would think she was staying under the radar, but um, there was a $500 reward uh, listed for Harriet Tubman. Capture dead or alive, $500. That was big money back then. Hmm. And you can imagine if you were a person who was enslaved in the South seeking freedom, and she's she's there with those two rules it seems like that would make you feel safe and like you're gonna get out absolutely absolutely (laughs) 
Who else is on your list? Uh, uh, definitely would have to put Lloyd Gaines on that list. So Lloyd Gaines uh, was a college student in Missouri, and he simply wanted to go to law school. Uh, in his home state. Uh, the University of Missouri had a prohibition against African Americans attending. What they would do, though, to satisfy the Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal, most states at that time would provide a scholarship for an African American to go out of state to some school that accepted African Americans. When they sat down in the 1930s, uh, several uh, leaders said, well, you've got to go into court and say separate but equal is wrong. Separate but equal was wrong the day it was sanctioned by the Supreme Court in 1896. And uh, we knew it was wrong then. We know it's wrong today. The Supreme Court should reverse its decision. Thurgood Marshall argued in that room in 1930, we can change America by attacking the equal part, not the separate part, because in most states, they haven't provided equality. The Supreme Court said separate but equal in Plessy, so in education, separate but equal should mean one dollar spent for every white child is one dollar must be spent for every black child. So Thurgood Marshall says, let's go into court and let's argue that Plessy has been violated because there hasn't been equality. Once we get uh, the Supreme Court to do that, states will have to provide equality, but most likely they will integrate because they're not going to be willing to spend the money that it takes. That was a gamble on the part of Marshall, but in 1938, Thurgood Marshall, Charles Houston, go before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, they make the argument that, look, there's no separate but equal school in Missouri. So therefore, Missouri has violated the Plessy Doctrine. Supreme Court, in an eight-to-one decision, says, you're absolutely right. Lloyd Gaines, after four years of litigation, Lloyd Gaines wins. And since the state of Missouri doesn't have a separate but equal law school, they must admit Lloyd Gaines until they have a separate but equal law school. And so Thurgood Marshall tries to contact Lloyd Gaines after four years of litigation. They're not able to contact Lloyd Gaines because he walks out of his dorm several months after uh, the decision comes down and he's never seen or heard from again. And what I tell my students is, while we're sitting in a classroom, academic classroom, talking theory, there are real consequences. These individuals are demonstrating tremendous courage in standing up for what they believe in, uh, in dissenting in America and going against the status quo. And Lloyd Gaines gave the ultimate sacrifice, in my view, uh, so that law students today could be in a racially integrated classroom. And so if to me, all law students today owe Lloyd Gaines a great debt of gratitude for his courage and for his willingness to challenge the status quo and be on the list of great dissenters.
gotta mention another great dissenter, uh, George Wythe. And uh, George Wythe was a slave owner uh, in Virginia. He was a founding father, signer of the Declaration of Independence, inherited over 100 slaves, freed every slave he inherited uh, but two, uh, and became a member of the Virginia legislature. He was the first law professor uh, uh, in the country as well. Uh, George Wythe uh, becomes a member of the Virginia legislature, and he introduces a bill the Gradual Abolition Act, which uh, would gradually abolish slavery in Virginia. Now, you know, that was, that was a small step, right, in the abolition movement. But um, I mention that because Wythe couldn't get much support in the Virginia legislature for that. So he steps down from the Virginia legislature and becomes a judge in Virginia. And in 1806, he has a case that comes before him uh, that allows him uh, to put his practice and beliefs into gear. Uh, it's called Hudgens versus Wright, and it was a freedom suit case brought by the Wright family, uh, which was of mixed American Indian and white ancestry. And uh, someone, Hudgens, claimed that the Wrights uh, were his slaves. There was no evidence at all except for a claim, these individuals are my slaves. Goes before George Wythe as a trial court judge, and George Wythe says, how must I rule if I have no evidence except a claim that these individuals are slaves? Wythe says, I look at the Virginia Bill of Rights, which says all persons are born free and equal, I interpret the Virginia language in the Bill of Rights as giving everyone the presumption of freedom. Therefore, the rights must go free. Goes up to the Virginia Court of Appeals. And the Virginia Court of Appeals says, Wythe, you're right. The rights must go free. But you're wrong on your reasoning. The rights must go free because there is a presumption of freedom for those who look a certain way. And this is when the court lays out what I call the first racial profiling case under the American Constitution. 1806, the court lays out a racial profile, and it really is specific. It says, okay, suppose you come across three individuals walking north on the road in Virginia, and someone claims that these three individuals are his slaves. How must we rule? And the Virginia Court of Appeals says, we must rule based upon the profile. If an individual looks white, skin looks white, with a prominent Roman nose and, and wavy straight hair and thin lips, that individual gets a presumption of freedom. If the individual has copper-colored skin, long, jetty, black, straight hair, and I'm quoting from the case, long, jetty, black, straight hair, that individual also gets the presumption of freedom. But if the individual has thick lips, broad nose, woolly hair, and this is a, is a quote also, or inclining thereto, woolly hair or inclining thereto, 
that individual is entitled to the presumption of slavery. Now, for 20,000 Virginians, blacks who were free in Virginia in 1806, that was a denial of their due process rights. And I mentioned that White was the first law professor. St. George Tucker was the author of the appeal. He overruled White. He was a student of White. And so it was fascinating to look at White who said, you know what? I'm going to write a book, The Mistakes of the Virginia Court of Appeals. I'm going to write a book about how my students didn't listen. Dr. Higginbotham says any version of this list has to end with a man who is actually nicknamed the Great Dissenter. Seriously, it's on his Wikipedia page. And this is a person named John Harlan, who is a United States Supreme Court justice, known as the Great Dissenter, because John Harlan dissented in the civil rights cases, which were decided right before Plessy versus Ferguson, and uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson. And it begins with the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, the first cases that the Supreme Court uh, interpreted in terms of Reconstruction Amendments. And it ends with Plessy versus Ferguson. And the court narrows the protections so that it almost eviscerates the Equal Protection Clause. It almost eviscerates the um, Due Process Clause with respect to blacks. And Justice Harlan dissents, and his dissents are powerful stuff. And so powerful that 60 years later, in Brown versus Board of Education, he's the only justice that the nine justices in Brown can agree with. And the nine justices in Brown basically say, Harlan, 60 years earlier, you were right. Harlan's dissent basically says, we know why blacks are being excluded. Everyone knows this. The state is trying to say that it's because they want to uphold freedom of choice, that they want to allow blacks and whites to choose how they interact. And so uh, the laws separating blacks and whites are basically an embrace of freedom, not a denial of it. And Justice Harlan says, let's be honest. We know why they're being passed. They're being passed because some whites don't want to sit in a car with blacks. And Harlan says, if you ever want to reduce racial conflict, if you really want to create peace and tranquility in American society, you have to get rid of these laws. These laws are the cause of the conflict. These laws are the cause of the friction. He says the true purpose is to denigrate blacks. These laws basically embrace an inferiority of blacks based on race. And, he, and Harlan says they're wrong. And everybody knows they're wrong. Uh, Harlan was right 60 years before his time. What can you say about the legacy of some of this dissent that has happened over hundreds of years? Yeah. 
Um, I think when you look at the progress that we've made in America in terms of racial uh, equality, much of that progress has to be equated to these dissenters because they were able not only to make arguments that were later embraced, they provided the ammunition for the later embracing of these arguments of equality. Is the Constitution too flawed? You know what? Um, I believe that you can criticize. We're not perfect, and you should be able to criticize and make us better. But we do have a lot of wonderful things, and we need to recognize that, and we need to take pride in those things in the Constitution. The founders, uh, they got it right on a lot of things. The, the separation of powers concept is a wonderful one. The absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a great concept, and I think it's really done, done us well. I do think that it's important when you're thinking about dissent in America, I do think it's important to recognize just how much of a contribution uh, dissenters have made. When you look back on our society, when you look at those who went against the grain, when you look at those who petitioned the Supreme Court or who went to Congress, um, we need to be very thankful that not only do we protect those dissenters, but that eventually much of what they were dissenting about has become the norm. And so when we look at today and what's happening, I think we have to keep that in mind because there's a lot of, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of anxiety about dissent that's going on in our country today. But 10, 20, 30 years from today, some of those dissenters are going to be the norm. American Descent is a production of With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities and James Madison's Montpelier. Our artwork is by Carson McNamara, and our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Kelly Libby. Thanks for listening. <laughs>